This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I want to talk about the gall of Chief Justice John Roberts and the scumbaggery of Sam Alito and why they should both resign, and I will. But let me begin, please, with the late Barbara Walters. And since she died Friday night, there has been one story after another about Barbara Walters, the groundbreaker, and Barbara Walters, the feminist, and Barbara Walters, the interviewer, and Barbara Walters, the role model, and I am not seeing enough about Barbara Walters with the proverbial large soul. Years ago, somebody disparaged her work. I can't remember now if it was some comment made on one of my MSNBC shows or just one I heard somewhere else scowled at and chose to attack. Either way, I called the comment out. I ran through the reasons I thought she should be above such criticism, and the whole thing was over in about 30 or 45 seconds tops. Early the next week, in the small stack of mail appearing on my desk at MSNBC World Headquarters in Secaucus, New Jersey, was a note in a very expensive envelope with a very expensive New York City return address on it, probably Central Park West. I opened it, and atop the very expensive stationery, I saw one name embossed. Barbara Walters. Keith, she wrote. What a lovely and caring gesture. I'm not as tough as I pretend to be, and the support means the world to me. I cannot thank you enough. Keep going. The show gets better nightly with deep admiration, Barbara. Barbara Walters and I had never met. Then years after that, Tim Russert died. I anchored the coverage that awful night, and if I remember correctly, we got Barbara on the phone, and she was poetic about Tim, as so many of us were that night. And the next week, I traveled to Washington to anchor the MSNBC coverage of the memorial service. It was poignant, yet fun, yet respectful, and there had to have been a thousand reporters and politicians there, and the moment it ended, it turned into your standard Washington social event, which I would not wish on my worst enemy. So sad about Tim. Did you hear what happened at the Post? 
I made a quick pass of the room and shook a few hands and said hello to a few friends and had the admittedly cool experience of being introduced to Woodward by Bernstein. And then I was blowing out towards the elevator when I heard a familiar voice behind me. Keith, two things. First off, thanks again for the support. I drew a blank. Barbara Walters reminded me of the support details. We are talking something that might have occurred 10 years earlier. Certainly it was at least three or four years earlier. And as I said, it took no more than 45 seconds. She still wanted to bring it up. Secondly, she asked, what did you think of The New Yorker? I had been profiled in the issue that was, I think, still on the stands when Tim Russert died, or it had been on the stands a few weeks earlier. The piece was not entirely complimentary. It was not bad, but it had been written by the worst kind of journalist. Somebody who pretends to be your fan or supporter or a friend of a friend. His name was Peter Boyer, and I knew him only from a very good book he had written about CBS News. And not that he was a condescending conservative. That I did not know. Among other things, he had printed in The New Yorker details about my seizure disorder and the medication I used for it, things that I had told him off the record to give him a little context for a criticism he said he wanted to answer on my behalf. It was pretty despicable. Turned out it was something he did a lot of. Anyway, I told Barbara I was not completely happy with the article. Nor was I, she said sharply. In fact, I called Boyer. I yelled at him. On the other hand, let me remind you of something. They put your name on the cover, the cover of the New Yorker magazine. And at least the copies I saw, they also stapled that paper band to the cover. And that had your name and the story on it in even bigger letters. Cover of the New Yorker. You cannot buy that kind of publicity, Keith. Take the win. I laughed. Plus, I did a little research, Barbara Walters went on. You're the first person from TV news mentioned on the cover of The New Yorker in 15 years. Trust me, nothing is a total victory in this business. Take the win. She reached up and gave me a kiss on the cheek and a professional hug, and she shooed me away. If you're on the air tonight, get going. It's almost 5 o'clock. I've told that story a lot since it happened in 2008, and about 40-50% of the time, what I have heard then is, you know, when the Times did a story about me, Barbara called and said, or when Murdoch ran that hit piece on me, Barbara wrote me and said she'd call up the editor and screamed at him. That line she wrote in that note to me all those years ago, I'm not as tough as I pretend to be, and the support means the world to me, was as much the story of Barbara Walters, I think, as the breakthroughs and the great get interviews and the glass ceilings broken. She had a protective and proactive empathy and in understood and endorsed the reality that none of us is as tough as we pretend to be, and the support means the world to us, too. I am old enough to have seen Barbara Walters on the Today Show, on a black-and-white TV, and to have recognized... Even as a kid, her gradual evolution from the token who got to do the, quote, women's stories to the full-fledged co-anchor with heavyweight newsmen like Hugh Downs and Jim Hartz and Frank McGee. And I was 16 when the metaphorical earthquake hit TV news and Rune Arledge hired her away from NBC to co-anchor the ABC Evening News. Rune Arledge, the inventor of ABC Sports and the protector of Howard Cosell, 
had just subsumed the news division of ABC as its chief, too. And bluntly, in retrospect, it is amazing he survived the series of mistakes he made in hiring Barbara Walters. Make myself clear here. Hiring Barbara Walters was not the mistake. How Arledge did it and what he subjected her to was his mistake. Ultimately, it worked out for her, for him, and for ABC. But that had nothing to do with him or ABC. He hired Barbara Walters to do a job that required the presence and skills of an anchor. Can you fill the television screen by yourself? Can you read aloud and on camera without looking tentative or lost or bored? CBS later did this with Katie Couric, and it didn't work. In sports terms, you're hiring a slugging first baseman, and you just assume they will instantly become a star pitcher? Barbara Walters was not an anchor. She was an interviewer, and few were better at it, and she could appear on camera for a few moments and stare down the audience, but she was not an anchor. She told us all that later. Not only did Arledge not plan for her to do interviews as the primary job, but he stuck her on a newscast that went through anchors the way Spinal Tap went through drummers. ABC's most successful anchor in its history to that point hosted, at the same time as it hosted the ABC News, he hosted a game show on CBS. His name was John Daly. When he quit in 1960, ABC then went through nine anchors in five years. Then they hired a 26-year-old guy from Canada named Peter Jennings, who came across like a very sophisticated 11-year-old spelling bee champion. They sent him on a 10-year tour of foreign capitals, and a year after that, they went with a veteran newsman named Bob Young. And one day, Bob Young was pruning trees at his home, and he fell from the ladder, and he was never again quite certain where he was. By 1976, the ABC anchor was the surly Harry Reasoner, and without asking him first, Arledge anointed Reasoner and Walters as co-anchors, and Arledge just assumed they would be a happy TV couple. Reasoner did not want a co-anchor, he certainly did not want a woman co-anchor, and he particularly did not want a woman co-anchor named Barbara Walters. He literally would not say her name nor look at her on the air, and that was the nicest he was to her all day. As if it could get worse, to entice her away from NBC, Rude Arledge offered to double Barbara's salary to a million dollars a year, and he made sure to leak this fact to every newspaper in America. So what? Well, the publicity was invaluable to Arledge and to ABC, and unfortunately, relative to Barbara, it was 100% negative. Walter Cronkite did not make a million a year. He wasn't making a million a year when he retired five years later. Harry Reasoner made $200,000 a year. Johnny Carson, who did four 90-minute shows a week, was getting $2 million a year from NBC. So Arledge had made Barbara into an anchor for which she would be widely criticized, forced her to co-anchor with a misogynist who widely criticized her on air and off, on the record and off, and in case there was anybody left likely to be on her side, he gave her a record-breaking salary when a million dollars was a million dollars. Surprisingly enough, the ABC Evening News with Harry Reasoner and Barbara Walters, it didn't work out. Who would have guessed that? And for a time, she was the punching bag of television news. In fact, the punching bag 
of comedy. The Baba Wawa, Gilda Radner character, so warmly remembered from Saturday Night Live when it was funny. They kept bringing it up after she died last week. Do you think they did that character because they liked her? They did that because Barbara Walters was the easiest target in television. And yet, from that point, from a punchline, she became the Barbara Walters so correctly eulogized these last three days. She did that, despite, as she wrote me, I'm not as tough as I pretend to be and the support means the world to me. The reason her Walters newscast ended quickly and forced to do something else with her and the three more years of her no-cut five-year, $5 million contract, Rune Arledge agreed to her idea. The interview beat. Big-name breaking news interviews, Sadat and Begin. Big-name celebrity interviews, Katherine Hepburn. Big-name hybrid interviews, Monica Lewinsky. The rest of her story you know. Most people in broadcasting who I have known who have experienced the kind of Titanic meets iceberg moment that Barbara Walters did, or in her case, the Titanic meets iceberg two years, not moment, they don't respond well to that. They carry a certain understandable bitterness, in fact, no matter how much success they subsequently achieve. The iceberg is never far from their minds. So while we mourn her as a role model and ceiling shatterer, I will remember her always as the person who, after getting fricasseed for years, made sure that no compliment went unthanked, and who, when she sensed somebody who was not as tough as they pretended to be, needed a little help, did her best to provide that help, to support, to reassure you, trust me, nothing is a total victory in this business. Take the win. Your memory, Barbara Walters, as they say, is a blessing. Still ahead in a year when the Supreme Court, his Supreme Court, lost its remaining legitimacy and began to make Roger B. Tawney and the Dred Scott Supreme Court look good by contrast, what is the New Year's message from Chief Justice John Roberts? He and Alito and the other religious zealots are operating without fear or favor. It's you people out there who are wrong because you're making the justices feel unsafe by criticizing their corruption. That's next. This is Countdown. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics. Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last year after at least four justices lied under oath to the Senate that it was settled law and they would not vote to strike down Roe v. Wade. Somebody connected to Justice Samuel Alito, we believe, leaked a draft memorandum about that decision in order to keep the newer religious zealots on the court in line and not let them compromise on the ruling. Alito has gone abroad and publicly mocked the majority in this country as if he owned us and the court... The Supreme Republican Religious Court is ready to rule now on a series of new cases that could further advance fascism in this nation. And we learned this year that the ex-cult member wife of Justice Clarence Thomas not only texted with various lunatics on the extreme fringes of the fringe right about overturning the government, but sent the chief of staff to the then president a virtual cut and paste job from the craziest of the QAnon psychos about how, quote, the Biden crime family would be, quote, living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. But she now regrets her tone. Screw her. But Chief Justice John Roberts knows the real victims here himself, the Thomases, Alito and the others. John Roberts has issued his annual report on the state of the federal judiciary, and he has ignored all of this and instead devoted that report entirely to something else. Quote, the law requires every judge to swear an oath to perform his or her work without fear or favor. But we must support judges by ensuring their safety. A judicial system cannot and should not live in fear. Chief Justice Roberts needs to resign. Whatever fear he and the rest of the Supreme Court may pretend to feel is nothing compared to the fear of the citizens of this country, who are the justices' employers, that the court has completely lost touch with reality and is now merely and entirely a weaponized offshoot of the Federalist Society, part of the far-right power structure which has finally accelerated its decades-long goal of eliminating nearly all of the freedoms of the United States of America. This is not the first time I have called on John Roberts to resign, and guess what? I doubt it will be the last. Last September, at the 10th Circuit Bench and Bar Conference in Colorado, Roberts first made us realize that he is, in fact, 
the living, breathing embodiment of the this is fine dog in the burning room. Only he's chief justice this is fine and the room is our nation imperiled by his Supreme Court. Simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. John Roberts is talking about the blowback to the Supreme Court for having overturned Roe v. Wade, and he is so wrong. It is nearly impossible for him to continue as Chief Justice. Firstly, that is not the only basis for questioning the legitimacy of the Supreme Court right at the moment, John. I'll get to that in a moment. But just as a statement, quote, because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court, that is not only nonsense, it is historically proven nonsense. There have only been 17 chief justices of the United States. You would think one of them, Roberts, would know about his predecessors, like one of them, Roger B. Taney, who oversaw a Supreme Court so disconnected from reality whose opinions were so disagreed with that they were literally ignored and the Supreme Court itself was irrelevant in American life for nearly a decade. The primary decision that nearly destroyed the Tawny Supreme Court and nearly destroyed the Supreme Court forever was Dred Scott, which forced a free man back into slavery as the Roberts Court ruling on Dobbs will force American women to give birth against their will to become breeding slaves. But there's actually an even bigger issue than that. A tidal wave is going to wash away the Roberts Supreme Court, change its size and composition at the minimum, and it will put John Roberts next to Roger B. Taney on the short list of the most infamous chief justices of all time. And he thinks it's about their verdict, not the political corruption and subversion of the Constitution that has delegitimized his court. Listen to more of John Roberts from this Colorado conference over the weekend. If the court doesn't uh, uh, retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, um, I'm not sure who would uh, take up that uh, mantle. You don't want the political branches telling you what the law is. You don't want the political branches telling you what the law is. John Roberts, could you be any more naive? One Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas, is the husband of a January 6th insurrectionist, a pure example of the political branches, specifically one political party telling you what the law is. Another Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch, has his seat solely because the political branches, specifically one politician, the then Senate Majority Leader, made up a rule permitting him to deny even a hearing to the Supreme Court nominee of the president from the other political party. Another Supreme Court justice, a glorified paralegal named Amy Coney Barrett, has her seat solely because, after promising to apply that made-up rule in all future identical circumstances, the political branches, specifically the leading politicians of the then-Senate majority, lied and did not apply that made-up rule. All three of those justices, and probably a fourth, lied under oath to the Senate during their confirmation hearings. In writing the opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade, yet another justice, Samuel Alito, not only cited as legal precedent the hallucinations of a 17th century British judge who used to hang witches, but he then gave a purely political speech in another country, mocking those in his country, our country, who disagreed with the witch hanger and with him and with his personal religion. Chief Justice Roberts 
You don't want the political branches telling you what the law is? You preside over a political whorehouse. Under your stewardship, Roberts, the Supreme Court has less legal authenticity than the Sharia courts of Iran. You have taken 233 years of American Supreme Court history, which survived even Roger B. Tawney and Dred Scott, and destroyed its legitimacy. All of you are wrong on the facts, wrong on the precedents, wrong on your understanding of how to conduct yourselves simply as citizens of this country. Simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. We do not question the legitimacy of your court, Mr. Roberts, just because of a decision that the Senate will sooner or later erase. We question the legitimacy of your court, Mr. Roberts, because you and your court are illegitimate. What's truly amazing about John Roberts is he's the fourth least insane member of the court. I mean, Clarence Thomas is the eighth least insane member of the court. The champion, the man who is not only intent on ending representative government in this nation, but is not even bothering to pretend he is not. We will hear him mock us next. This is Countdown. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. 
players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To continue on the subject of the Supreme Court as 2023 begins, you would have thought John Roberts might have mentioned in his annual report his purported investigation into the Roe v. Wade draft leak, unless perhaps that investigation is proving it was indeed an Alito clerk or other ally who done it. Or that the report might have included some kind of response to the New York Times story and the subsequent inquiry from the House and Senate Judiciary Committees that Mr. Alito has had a little trouble keeping his fascist mouth shut. The Times rather clearly laid out the evidence that Alito discussed the outcome of the 2014 Hobby Lobby contraception case with one of the evangelicals pushing this theocratic horse crap before the court issued its opinion. Quoting the evangelical pushing the theocratic horse crap pretty much sold me on the Times story. No crickets. Well, crickets from Roberts crickets from anybody else interested in the American representative government as we know it now, not crickets from the terrorist organization that unleashed this court on an unsuspecting and unprepared America, and particularly this worm Alito. When he spoke to the Federalist Society in November, they knew what he had done, who he had done it for, and to which cause he is a hero. Justice Samuel Alito is a prejudiced, dishonest, lazy, proselytizing fraud with a messiah complex and an agenda to serve not the law, not the democracy, not the nation, but to serve his own religious beliefs. He is intent on turning the Supreme Court into the Republican Supreme Religious Court and intent on turning this nation into a theocracy, and he has gotten quite a head start on both. And yet somehow, this week, on the eve of the investiture of Justice Jackson, he has reached a personal new high in low. It goes without saying that everyone is free to express disagreement with our decisions and to criticize our reasoning as they see fit, Alito said in response to a stark but mild reality check from Justice Elena Kagan. But saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. Mr. Alito, you have no integrity left to be questioned. Mr. Alito, your institution consists of at least four justices who perjured themselves under oath to the Senate in their confirmation hearings. One of your justices, Mr. Alito, is married to a woman who needed to testify yesterday to the House committee investigating the attempt to overthrow the government of the United States by coup, and she had to reassure that committee that she never discussed any of her involvement with her husband, the Justice. 
These justices, Mr. Alito, are illegitimate, and they alone would make the court illegitimate. Mr. Alito, at least one of your justices sits with you only because of the destruction of the Senate of the United States by its lead Republican member. The line, sir, was crossed when Merrick Garland was pocket vetoed. Ever since that moment, your institution has been nothing more than a tool of the Republican Party designed to use the trappings of the law to legitimize the illegitimate and to assert integrity when there is nothing but corruption. Mr. Alito, you are a political prostitute. And Justice Clarence Thomas is a political prostitute. Justice Neil Gorsuch is a political prostitute. Justice Brett Kavanaugh is a political prostitute. Justice Amy Coney Barrett is a political prostitute. Chief Justice John Roberts is a political prostitute. Whatever you once aspired to, Mr. Alito, whatever you believed you had become when you were given your seat, whatever dignity or respect you thought you were now owed, you have long since forfeited and forfeited beyond the most remote possibility of reclamation. You and that room full of partisan hacks have destroyed the Supreme Court of the United States, and had you either intelligence or dignity, you would resign and devote the rest of your life to seeking forgiveness for the damage you have personally inflicted upon this nation in the name of a corrupt and morally bankrupt political party, and in the name of religion, not just your religion, but all religions, which whatever else it is or is not, is just a belief, just a hope, just a wish, perhaps more reliable than a horoscope, but perhaps not. Two years ago, 67% of this country said it had a great deal or fair amount of trust in the Supreme Court. Last year, that number was still 54%. As of a Gallup poll released yesterday, it is now 47%. The court's job approval in 2020 was 58%. It is now 40%. The political majority has not changed on the court since 2020. Indeed, it has not changed since 1970. The citizens of this country have not politicized their view of you and the court, Mr. Alito. It is you and the frauds with whom you sit who have politicized the court beyond this nation's ability to withstand it anymore. And it is you and the frauds with whom you sit who have now substituted the Bible for the law book. Saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. No one has said this, Mr. Alito, but you and the charlatans in robes around you have accomplished this. You are the assassins of your own institution, and you are the murderers of your own integrity, and you are the erasers of the most important line between legal impartiality and political thuggery. The very worst moments, said Justice Kagan, of the court's history 
have been times when judges have even essentially reflected one party's or one ideology's set of views in their legal decisions. The thing that builds up reservoirs of public confidence is the court acting like a court and not acting like an extension of the political process. If over time, the court loses all connection with the public and with public sentiment, that is a dangerous thing for democracy. To that judicious, polite, almost milk toast recitation of facts from Justice Kagan, you, Mr. Alito, decided you needed to try to metaphorically martyr yourself and to threaten this country for having had the nerve to recognize your illegitimacy and the audacity to question what had been your integrity. The Alito court, and make no mistake, it is his court. John Roberts is sinking into utter irrelevance. The Alito court is to hear cases starting next month that could roll back affirmative action in the admissions offices at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, and thus at every American college and university. The court may circumscribe the Voting Rights Act as it pertains to drawing congressional districts and African-American voters. It may rule to permit rogue state legislatures to eliminate election results at will. It may repeal laws that protect LGBTQ customers from discrimination by businesses. Do we expect the Alito court will examine legal precedents or the opinions of televangelists? You probably already know of Alito's speech in Rome in July at the Notre Dame Religious Freedom Summit, which, as with most religious conferences, is misnamed and was actually the Notre Dame Religious You Have No Freedom But to Obey Us Summit. You probably heard him mock the world leaders who were appalled by the court's dishonest overturning of Roe v. Wade with its reliance on the legal wisdom of a judge who used to oversee the hanging of witches. You may have heard him bash secular values and the, quote, new moral code. But you probably did not hear him tell this meaningless anecdote, which he told with the gravity of someone who has just watched the burning of an original copy of the Constitution. I'm reminded of an experience I had a number of years ago in a museum in, um, in Berlin. Uh, One of the exhibits was a rustic wooden cross. A young, uh, an affluent woman, a a well-dressed woman and a young boy were looking at this exhibit and the young boy turned to the woman, presumably his mother, and said, who is that man? That memory has stuck in my mind as a harbinger of what may lie ahead for our culture. Samuel Alito believes it is his job. It is the job of an American judge. It is the job of the Supreme Court. It is the job of the United States of America government to force its citizens to be able to identify a man on a cross who may or may not have ever existed, to force them to honor the businesses that have built themselves into world-influencing powers by attributing quotes to this potentially fictional character, and to defer to the interpretations of what this man who may or may not have ever lived 
had to say about what the laws of the United States of America should be and who the president of the United States of America should be. Mr. Alito, that rustic wooden cross, I have a suggestion where you can put it. There is one last vital point about what Samuel Alito said and the danger it represents and the necessity for action that it causes. When Alito says questioning the court's integrity, quote, crosses an important line, what line does he mean? What also does he believe should be done after whatever that line is, is crossed? I believe the answer is far more ominous than is currently being recognized. On June 23rd of this year, I tweeted, forgive the self-quote, it has become necessary to dissolve the Supreme Court of the United States. The first step is for a state the court has now forced guns upon to ignore this ruling. Great. You're a court. Why and how do you think you can enforce your rulings? Hashtag ignore the court. It's a tweet. Three days later, on June 26th, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida retweeted my remarks and added, quote, It is a federal offense to incite rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof. What Rubio all but said there, what Alito has opaquely danced around when asserting that questioning the court's integrity crosses an important line, is that they intend not just to suppress criticism of a corrupt, prostituted Supreme Court, but to criminalize it. If Marco Rubio can look at a tweet calling for states to ignore court rulings, which is one of the core values of his Republican Party... If he can do that and imply that I am guilty of inciting rebellion and insurrection by tweeting, then unfortunately we have to take Alito's reference to saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line, not as a defensive, holier-than-thou spasm, but as a threat to every one of us. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribing to the podcast, please do so. You do not have to use your own name, I am told. Here are our credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. It appears courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 727th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. A new edition tomorrow as we resume the regular five-day-a-week schedule. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck.
Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.